When you appreciate that futures and foresight arose within a dominant Western perspective of the realities and morals of alternative futures, then how can you get outside that if it is necessary? And so just to wake people up to the fact that don't forget that there are other experiences out mm. there and to the point of this dystopia that you're dreaming of is the lived experience for millions of people today on this planet. So raising films, artwork, papers, videos of content creators, artists, and writers of different genres that are outside of the mainstream that perhaps do not get the attention, that present different ways of seeing the world, that allow my students of color to see themselves reflected in the way that that wasn't there when I was a kid. That's my guest today, Zan Chandler, who's an adjunct professor at OCAD University in Toronto, Canada. And Zan joins me to talk about that and a number of other topics. Welcome to FuturePod, Zan. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure, Zan. What's the Zan Chandler story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, it's a bit of a meandering story, crossing multiple <laughs> continents. I think since I was, ever since I was a young girl, I was always interested in the future, in space and that kind of thing. The science fiction fan, my father and I spent lots of time watching science fiction movies and TVs together. So I was always dreaming about what the future might look like and always, at the time, didn't even realize that I wasn't seeing images of myself in that mm. Right, like images of people. I was perfectly fine with just dreaming about all of that. But that carried on into my teen years. And I think I was always thinking about creating story, imagining possibilities. I ended up after studying linguistics, which was a bit of a weird segue, but very thankful that I did that because that was my introduction into systems thinking, though I didn't know it at the time. I spent a year in Australia and I studied photography at the Sydney School of Photography. And that got me started in the cultural sphere, um, taking photographs, shooting film and whatnot. And part of my career led me to work for the Canadian federal government, essentially working on cultural policy, right at the time that the internet and digital technologies ah. were changing the landscape. And I was lucky enough to work on a task force that was looking at this and trying to figure out what does this mean for all the policies, for the funding instruments and tax credits and other types of things. And it was a foresight project. We mm. were thinking about change and we were thinking about the implications of change. Of course, we had no idea we were doing foresight. There was nobody who had been trained or even exposed to it, but we were trying our best. And I often think, I wish I could go back and work on that project again. Yeah. Now I have the tool <laughs> to help me through it. That started it for me in a way. And after I did that, I was lucky enough to do a residency at the Canadian Film Centre Media Lab where I met Suzanne Stein. Ah. And she, she came in and did a workshop uh, on this foresight thing. And I thought, ooh, interesting. I like that. <laughs> and then coincidentally, not very long after that, the Strategic Foresight and Innovation Program at OCAD opened up. And I was part of the first cohort. And lucky enough 
to study with Suzanne, who I now teach with, and to study with Helen Kerr, who I've worked on foresight projects with over the last eight years. So you actually did the initial OCAD course with Suzanne? Yes, I was part of the first cohort. So we have a similar story because I was in the first cohort of Richard's foresight course at Swinburne and like you, I was in government. I was mucking around, didn't realise I was trying to do foresight projects when I was working in the government and then I met a real futurist and I've got, oh, they're different. So that's interesting that we followed what I call the pracademic path. We started doing foresight before we actually understood what the hell foresight was. Which actually I think is a great way of doing things. I work in an academic institution and I work with people who are both practitioners and theoreticians. And this particular program is really interesting because it gives you a bit of both. Mm. And I know students really respond to being able to see things from both sides. And I've come to learn myself that the best learning experience for me is to do a bit and then learn the theory and do a bit more and go deeper into the theory. We know that thinking about the future is an innately human thing to do. And it's not just innately human, it's innate to many other animal species as well. But the fact that people who aren't trained in it can naturally do it because they want to change things, they want to improve things. And yet, is there a tension with what As a discipline, we think that people should be trained in this in order to do it well, that there's both an innately human part to it and then we have constructed this kind of, not saying you can't, but really you should be trained. You should be part of the orthodoxy and everything else. Yeah, I see that tension most definitely, especially when I talk to my colleagues who are deeply involved in participatory futures work. And I totally enjoy reading the foresight theory, reading about the works of great academic thinkers, et cetera, et cetera, as well as those people who are going out there and doing foresight projects. And many of those people are doing both of those, which is great. Um, But it feels very rooted in modernist Western perspective to say, you have to be academically trained and you have to come from a specific position. You have to use a specific methodology. Otherwise, you're not doing futures work properly. And I really enjoy the methods and the methodology. I really enjoy going into that. I really enjoy practicing it and getting better and understanding at a deeper level why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I also want to be able to leave space for people who have the lived experience And as I become more and more of a student around whether it's inclusive futures or deep colonial futures or whatever we want to call it and read more thinkers from other parts of the world, indigenous thinkers from North America or Australia or many African countries, there you see that tension of the expert in the methods and in the theory versus the experts in the lived experience. Yeah. Futures, as I look at it has gone through like any discipline approach has gone through its phases has gone through its revolutions in thinking the new paradigms um are we starting to bump into the next real paradigm in futures work where it does own up to that futures has been an instrument of power and orthodoxy in order to sustain orthodoxy 
And is this paradigm around futures being, as you say, decolonizing action rather than a colonizing action? I would agree with you. I think that we are on the edges of this area, this zone of fuzziness and conflict. Maybe we're making a shift to another paradigm. That will probably be clearer when we're a little further along. But I do think there's something really interesting going along. Just when I think about who I'm coming across, who I'm reading or listening to or hearing at conferences and things like that, who are challenging the history and the practice of foresight and futures work and also bringing in other ways of thinking, whether it's indigenous philosophies, whether it's being, some people hate this this phrase, but being trauma-informed. When you're doing work, regardless of what kind of work you're doing in certain communities and communities that have experienced intergenerational trauma, who are experiencing lived trauma, this kind of work can be very detrimental, can be Mm. very triggering. And so how can we do that with more care and compassion? That's definitely a learning path for me. I am not an expert in that I'm learning as I go along in the same way that I'm learning about if I want to work with Indigenous communities in Canada, that I have a lot to learn. Mm. And so I'm on that journey. And I see people, graduates of this program and other friends within the foresight community are grappling this question, who recognizing, wait a second, we haven't really thought about what we're doing from the other perspectives. Let's spend some time doing that now. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks, Anne. So... What's in Zan's bag of tricks? What Can you maybe talk about a framework or an approach that is either central to what you do or something that you're trying to make central to what you do? Well, I could think about two things. I Because I learned systems and foresight together, yep. even though I had perhaps a little bit more experience thinking about systems or understanding the nature of systems, that systems existed before coming into foresight, I've learned them together. And so the idea of doing foresight without having a serious systems underpinning just is crazy to me. I can't conceive it because in my brain, those two are wired together. And so as I have progressed and learned to become a better practitioner, I have been doing my studies in systems as well. So that will be one thing. So bringing a systems approach to any kind of project that I'm working on is definitely something I do more readily these days. But this decolonial inclusive futures, I think, is a way of moving about in the space that's been taking up much more of my my time and energy and trying to reconceptualize what does my practice look like? Luckily, working at OCAD, it's an institution that is going through a process of decolonization the program is as well. We don't know what that looks like. That will have to be created. And that's exciting. So continuing to try to bring those perspectives to recognize that we have multiple ways of looking at things, we have multiple ways of experiencing, and they should all be invited into the discussion. How you deal with that, how you process that information, I don't know, it's all a process of becoming, I think. Yeah. So perhaps for people Can you maybe just talk through some of the things that you're becoming aware of, the ways that you critically examine how you do a piece of work or how you do an engagement, design a curriculum that at least tries to bring it to the surface rather than just let it be unthought of? 
Right. And that's a process that's evolving again. And I think over the last few years, we've been making an effort and certainly I've been making an effort in whichever class I'm teaching to bring in more writing and other content that comes from outside of the Western European and North American canon. We have for the last several years have been exploring Afrofuturism as well as Indigenous futurisms and trying to present the basic concepts of the images of the future that we have been playing with within the mainstream that we learn about in school, that we read in strategy documents or out there in the business world, present a particular perspective that often doesn't represent the hopes and dreams and the lived realities of Indigenous people and other racialized people. And so just to wake people up to the fact that don't forget that there are other experiences out mm. there. And to the point of this dystopia that you're dreaming of is the lived experience for millions of people today on this planet. So raising films, artwork, papers, videos of content creators, artists, and writers of different genres that are outside of the mainstream that perhaps do not get the attention that present different ways of seeing the world that allow my students of color to see themselves reflected in the way that that wasn't there when I was a kid or very rarely there. I mean, witness the brouhaha over Ariel in the latest Disney movie. I don't know if you've seen these videos on Instagram of little black girls who've see the trailer and they're oh, just delighted to see someone who's brown you know like that's that 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 is a radical thing is stupefying so al- yeah. allowing students to be they're pushing they're definitely pushing too because each year more and more of them are coming in saying what about this what about that yeah. they're helping to grow the curriculum in that regard so particularly important for us in terms of living in north america and the work that Indigenous communities have been doing tirelessly for a very long time, and the efforts on the part of the country to recognize the historical harms and the consequences of that, whether it's kids who've been taken away from their families into residential schools or the thousands of missing and murdered women. So coming up at the end of the month, we have a new holiday, a National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Ah, yeah. So certainly over the last couple of years with the pandemic and the disproportionate impacts on Indigenous and racialized communities, people want to talk about that more. They want to understand that more. As you broaden a curriculum, what is it we're asking students to do apart from just read more broadly? We're also asking students to to really run the dialectic of, well, there is a Western canon. There is the aspirations of colonial society that felt it was that felt it was bringing civilization, and then alongside it is the lived experience of the other, the lived experience of the powerlessness. How do we educate students so that they can do that dialectic process of thesis antithesis, ultimately to find synthesis? Because I think that's what's coming up in all these pushbacks against thing they call wokeism is that people see us going from one to the other rather than asking people to work with all elements. 
And I think this is the big fear for a lot of people around decolonization. And certainly there are multiple opinions on this decolonization across the country. And depending on your perspective, as I said, being in Canada, the questions around decolonization are deeply connected to indigeneity. But because we are also a country that is populated largely by immigrants, Mm. there are many people who live in this country whose families, whose ancestors were colonized by European countries and have been raised in that context. And so, yeah, I think I recognize there is the fear of, well, we can't leave all of that stuff behind. And while there are certain people who are like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, we can. Uh, (laughs) Quite easily, thank you. That's what the future lets us do. But yeah, ultimately we want the students to go out there and be able to practice and earn a living. And so this is the Western. We introduce that most definitely and say, but this is not the only thing out there, Hmm. right? And if you're going to be doing work with these communities, you need to understand some of their history. And in conjunction with other classes, so this decolonization work is happening some to varying degrees in varying classes. And so we're understanding what does it mean to do research say, design research with Indigenous communities, well, there's a robust set of literature around design with and in Indigenous communities, as well as protocols. So students are becoming, if they want to do this, they can explore that even further. It really is an introduction. It is a way of saying, hey, look, there's this established canon that you will see out there everywhere. But that's not the only thing. There are these other ways of seeing and doing and being. And it's good to know them both and to know when to apply what. And try not to harm people along the way. Yeah. And it is a process, right? I mean, we are not experts. So we are learning as we're going through. And what's wonderful about it is students are coming in who are deeply experienced in some of this work, whether it's in design justice or design within Indigenous communities, or systems work like that, they come in and they teach us and we learn from them as well, which is wonderful. Good. Thanks, Sam. So, around you, what are the futures that you're paying particular careful attention to as they emerge? And why are particular futures really getting your attention at the moment? Well, I guess because I'm kind of deeply diving into like Afrofutures, trying to stay connected with the global Black diaspora and what's going on there. Those are the kinds of things that I've been paying attention to. So the stories, the work that's coming out of that, the practitioners as well as the scholars who are working in that space. And what's been really interesting since COVID and since the the murder of George Floyd, the openness around discrimination, racism, sexism, homophobia, whatnot, that just, all of that seems to be, well, certainly in the circles that I'm going in. I mean, I recognize some people that disagree with that, off of that. And I don't often have an opportunity to be in dialogue with them about it, because I think they, they, it's a self-weeding garden. This is the stuff I'm interested in. They don't agree with it, so they stay away. <laughs> so I'm paying attention to that. I one in the last few years, graduates are going out and doing interesting things. A graduate of mine of the program who was a student of mine, she and some other consultants have started a company that I think is 
classmate and it's definitely built on indigenous principles the way that they interact with their clients the way that they deal with their time their whole way of operating is very different to a typical consulting firm i'm feeling stuff like that's happening out there new businesses that are saying you know we're not going the old way we're charting new path here that is a little more how could i say a little more humane isn't all about making tons of money but about recognizing that we're all part of a global ecosystem and plants are our kin and the animals are our kin and we need to pay attention to our physical and mental well-being and spiritual well-being yeah it's all it's maybe a little bit woo-woo to some it might have been just sounding woo except for the two years of covid that we just went through when we blew up the status quo yeah when people told us that these things that we all did for two years couldn't be done. The fact that all universities went online at a time when there would have been universities saying, well, we can't teach online. Almost all workplaces went home-based when there were organisations saying they couldn't do it. So COVID was not a great experience for really anybody. However, it was a pressure cooker that simply broke the status quo to the point that it hasn't come back. We're now in that weird limbo period of which parts do we bring back and which parts do we just simply not even worry with anymore? And that sounds to me like your students are are kind of in that limbo period going, you know, we don't need to go back to the old model. We we now can basically create whatever model we want. And I really do feel like many of them are doing that. They're going out there and they are creating new models. I mean, the, the students, the graduates are going into... Uh, the full range of organizations, whether it's public sector, private sector, and they're doing really interesting things that I am particularly interested in hearing about the ones who are pushing back against the rat race and the need to generate as much profit as possible. I keep wondering whether the generations that have grown up with the internet, the generations that have now grown up, been through things like the GFC, the precariat for jobs, and now the COVID experience, are they just fundamentally wired differently because, yes, they're human beings, but they've had a, such a different lot of life experience than what I had? I am sure they are. I am sure they are. And more and more of our understanding how experience is affecting our genetic code. And I think so. I really do think that they see the world in a different way. I think about the young folks here who have been encouraged to step on this conveyor belt, this work career conveyor belt, and being asked to to follow the Mm. steps of finish high school, go to university, get a job, get married, have kids, buy a house, blah, 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 blah. When I lived in Australia, Melbourne and Sydney were expensive places to buy homes in, and that was decades ago yeah. <laughs> and you know Toronto is now catching up with that this is not possible they can't afford they, just, they can't afford it the real estate is just crazy and their student loans are astronomical no wonder they're saying I don't want to be in this rat race I want to do work meaningful work be fairly compensated but I am not giving everything to the job I have friends, I have family, I have my health, and the planet is going to hell in a handbasket. I've got work to do. 
Yes. And again, I bring it back to us as a community. We have the orthodoxy, we have the universities teaching the courses, we have the journals publishing the journal articles. And then we have almost another generation of people coming through that I don't know that we as a community, we are learning enough from them rather than them learning from us. Yeah, I wonder. I think that goes back to this idea of challenging the notion of being the expert. We may be extraordinarily knowledgeable in specific areas, but certainly not everything. And we, everybody has something to teach us. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. The communication question. How do you describe to people what Zan does when people don't understand what it is that Zan does? Well, usually by saying I'm a foresight practitioner and educator, (laughs) I get that blank look. But I think it really depends on who they are, where they're coming from. I learned this great piece of advice from a friend of mine who works in the Canadian government who used to work at the Treasury Board, which is, I guess, the department in the federal government that sets out many of the policies around finance, right? How money moves, et cetera, et cetera, as well as rates of pay and all of that kind of thing. And so she had a very nebulous job. I call it that. She might not call it that. But she had a job that wasn't very clearly defined. This is a woman who was a dancer, has a dance degree, but ended up being responsible for funding to the nuclear industry in the country, right? That's interesting. Extraordinarily good at her job. And that particular job as a Treasury Board analyst is a very important one. And she said her piece of advice was, I always reflect it back to them and say, what's the problem you're dealing with? I'll tell you how someone like me could help you. Ah, and nice. so I thought, oh, that's really good. So sometimes I do that. And if they come from a systems perspective, then maybe I take that angle and I come in and I talk about current systems and change and how systems in the future, the purpose of the system and the structure of the system will have changed. So we're looking at what might cause that. And if they're coming in from an art and design perspective or definitely a design perspective, a lot of designers can understand the perspective of you're not designing for today or yesterday, you're designing for some point down the road. And so how do you arm yourself with enough intelligence to make a good guess at what those needs might be 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So I try to figure out where they're coming from, how they see the world, and maybe what kind of problems they have, and then try to find some way for a future's perspective on it. Thanks, Anne. I'm very excited to finally get someone from the OCAD program in front of a microphone. I've certainly spoken to many of the products of the OCAD program. I first came aware of OCAD when I was involved with the Swinburne program and we were submitting our best student work to the Association of Professional Futurists. So I became aware of your work through that. Now, of course, I'm the chair of the student awards process and every year I see remarkable work coming out of your program. And so the question I'm dying to ask you is what's the magic? What's the secret? There are good programs in other universities, but there's something unique about the OCAD program in terms of the work that I see the students doing. Can you talk to the listeners about OCAD, what it's about, what makes it different? And also, if there's any chance if people are interested, how they might get some of the secret sauce themselves. 
Absolutely. I'm always happy to talk about the program. I think one of the one of the key things about the program is the fact that it's situated within an art and design institution. And because of that, those perspectives of creative lateral thinking are just core. Collaboration, creative lateral thinking are core to the whole program. The student body comes from a very diverse range of industries and sectors. The year that I was in, one of my cohort was an MBA professor from Queen's University in mm. Ontario. We've had science fiction novelists. There are usually designers, but it's a master of design program. So people think that you need to be designers to come into it, but that is not the case. People from finance, from healthcare, a broad range. And because it's so group work oriented, you really learn about collaboration and how the way you work, optimal working styles for working with other people. So I think that's it. And the program really focuses on futures thinking, systems thinking, design thinking. And of course, there are classes around leadership and strategy as well. And there's quite a broad range of skills that you need to be a leader in the future, a change maker in the future. So even though Foresight is in the name of the program and the Foresight class, it's just one Foresight class, it's a big class. However, it's a four-hour class every week. It's a studio <laughs> class, so there's a lot of doing in there. I think that's it, you know, just people coming from different backgrounds who have a desire to learn new skills to help either change careers, change their industries, change their organizations. And they bring all of that. They bring systems, strategy, design, as well as foresight and futures to their projects. And often the projects that get submitted for the APF student awards are the culminating dossiers from the Foresight Studio, which is the class that I teach with Helen Kerr and with Suzanne Stein, or it's their major research projects, where that's the big project at the end that enables them to take everything they've learned from two years or two and a bit years in the program. Running a program like that is, in my experience, is not easy in universities. Universities are odd places. You would think they would embrace openness and learning and creativity. And yet, in my experience, universities actually have got antibodies that ensure that they're not creative and they're not open. OCAD is the oldest art design institution in the country, like 130-something years old. It's right. been around for a long time and has a reputation for graduating interesting thinkers and artists. And so I think because we're in an art and design institution, some of the assumptions around how we might operate are perhaps less intrusive. And so there's a bit more freedom. But that's been a transition from being a college to a university before I started the program. So it's over 10 years ago. And so things have changed, right? So the requirements of a university are different to a college here in Ontario. And we are an extremely successful program. So perhaps we get given a little bit of... In terms of keeping keeping deans happy with numbers of students coming through door and so forth, you've obviously been successful in that respect as well. Yes, yes. But I really do think being centred in an art and design institution, especially one that has such a long legacy, is I don't know whether the program could have exactly the same shape and the same result in other places. That's not to say that it couldn't, but I think we are very lucky. Yeah. 
For people who aren't based in the Toronto area or can get to the Toronto area, is there any is there any capacity for a broader student cohort than just locals? Yes, that is coming. And the pandemic definitely demonstrated that. So in the years where we weren't having classes on campus, we had many international students zooming in from different parts of the world. And the university and the program definitely recognized that. And we don't have a program launched yet, but I do believe that is in the offing. So, yeah, soon. <laughs> is the design, if I can use the word container for foresight, is that making an impact in the journals and so forth of futures and foresight and the actual orthodoxy, or is it still an unusual part of foresight? I think it's still a bit unusual. I'm seeing some graduates get into the journals, but I'm not seeing, I'm not aware and I'm not paying particularly close attention Mm. to that. So there's maybe more going on than I'm aware of. I think because this world loves its silos. Yeah. And foresight that can't be separated from systems or from design thinking can sometimes maybe not find a particularly comfortable seat in more siloed spaces. Though I do think that the foresight space is generally quite open because there are lots of people who move back and forth between systems. And I'm sure there must be more people moving back and forth between foresight and design, particularly if you think about design futures and experiential futures and things like that. There's a lot more dialogue going in there. Sam, is there something about the way that OCAD is using this old design school to bring in alternative ways of thinking, systems, design, foresight, but also arcing back to this notion of we need to get better at other ways of understanding, we need to get better at listening to people who are different to us, is there, is there something that's going on in OCAD that makes it a way of working that actually works for our modern condition, for the fact that things are not working out, that the status quo is not taking us towards good futures, that, as you said, there are dystopias that are here right now? I think that art and design institutions have a long history of providing a space for counterculture creators and thinkers, for people who who can observe the world and present a different perspective on it, reflect back the not-so-niceties. And so I think that is something that's unique about this program coming out of an art and design institution. That space is already comfortable with people who are going to speak truth to power, who are going to dream up new ways of being, who are going to break orthodoxies. And I think that gets infused in the program in some ways in the sense of the people who choose to go there, they're choosing to go to an art and design institution that's going to expose them to futures and systems thinking and design and not to an MBA program. Yeah. And I teach in an MBA program as well. I teach futures thinking at Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. And it's a different experience, most definitely. We're not teaching people how to become foresighters. We're teaching them perhaps to be the sort of people who will hire foresighters or commission foresight work. 
so they're being exposed to futures thinking. But they attack the work from a very different perspective with different types of goals. The art and design container, I think, creates a space for people to come in and say, I don't really know what this is and I don't know what I'm going to get out of it in the end. But there are these really interesting inputs here, whether it's the curriculum, whether it's the other students, whether it's being located in downtown Toronto with all of the stuff that's going around, the museums and the art galleries and the nightclubs and the film shoots and the restaurants and all of that stuff, which creates an opportunity for people to be exposed to new ways of being and seeing and doing. And I'm not surprised that the communities that have been quite active within the broader space, like the Black community and the Indigenous community, communities and Indian communities, like they're bringing in their traditions, their ways of thinking and being. And I think that to a certain extent, just it creates an atmosphere where that is all okay, right? This is the world we live in. Toronto is a very unique place. It's a very multicultural city with lots of tensions that come from that. But I think that most people who live in the city appreciate the good things that come from both cultures and multiple perspectives, ways of seeing, butting up against each other and what you can learn from that. So I don't think it's a coincidence that this institution mm. has this program, is located in this city, and then attracts students from across the country, but also around the world increasingly. It's been a, a pleasure to finally meet and have a chat. Thank you very much for taking some time out to chat to the Foresight community. You're very welcome. It's been great. I really appreciate the work that you do with Future Pod, and I direct my students to listen. There's lots for them to choose from, so it's great. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Zan. My guest today was Zan Chandler. If you'd like to know more about the OCAD program, then please check out the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you'd like to support the pod, please check out our Patreon on the website. I'm Peter Haywood saying goodbye for now.